four. And uh, I don't know whether this is necessary to say. It just seemed like something fitting for the evening. You know, why, why, do, we, uh, why do we gather in, uh, week after week and study the Bible? Uh, it, it's not so that we can have a, uh, a free meal, not a free meal, but a, a meal and that we don't have to clean up after. Um, we believe that God has expressed his mind as black words on a white page. He's put his, his uh, he's described himself fully in the pages of this book. And so what we're doing is um, um, seeking to know him through what he wrote to us about himself. Let me read you just one uh, verse. Um, actually, it's just, well, I'll read the whole verse. Out of John 17, verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the very essence of eternal life is the knowledge we gain by studying this book. So we're not here to give Jimmy something to do on Wednesday nights, uh, make sure that he uh, has a complete job description. We're here because we're, we're, we're seeking to taste more fully, more deeply of eternal life by knowing this God and the Savior whom he has sent. So we're going to hear things that we've never heard before. We're, perhaps we're going to hear things that we've known for years. But it's simply those reminders of knowing this God and what he's like and what he loves and what he hates. That is the, is the cause, the reason behind our sitting beneath the scriptures, as Jimmy said. Open your copies of God's Word to Romans chapter 4, and we'll, um, we'll pick up there. I need to get us a running start because we've been doing something for about eight or nine weeks. <clears throat> you know, I, I know your schedules are, are difficult, and uh, it's hard for you to be here, uh, you know, every Sunday or every Wednesday. And, and, and consequently, there is somewhat of a loss. Because the loss is not because you missed Dr. Young. The loss is because this is a genius at work. That is the Apostle Paul. This is a man who is engaged in an argument of life and death with his brethren. He has a Jewish audience that he's so eager to try and win to Christ. And he is locked in this head-to-head argument, debate, discussion, dialogue, whatever you call it. Um, this treatise in trying to demonstrate to them that their understanding of the gospel was flawed. And so when you miss little portions of his argument, you miss, to, you miss out on grasping some of the, the great genius of the Apostle Paul. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, chapter 4 is, is uh, just another illustration of his genius. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, he's, he's been trying to do the same thing. It's an extended argument. And the extended argument is trying to prove to his Jewish, Jewish audience, his Jewish hearer, that the gospel that they believe is a wrong gospel. It is a gospel of works. It is a gospel of law works. It is a gospel of obedience. And it is a false gospel. And so he sets out to win them and convince them um, that they've got a hold of uh, the wrong gospel. And in this chapter, uh, I said is an illustration of his genius. What he does is that he uses as an illustration of the true gospel and their wrongness in believing the other gospel, one of their own heroes, Abraham. Abraham becomes for Paul somewhat of a test case because if Paul can demonstrate that what he is preaching is true as illustrated in the life of Abraham, then these guys, I mean, this is their hero. This is the one that they call the father of the faith. And so what he's seeking to do is show them, well, I, I, let me show you how this is fleshed out in your hero and my hero as well, the, um, your, your father Abraham. If he can show 
that Abraham was justified by faith, then all of these arguments that he's uh, used preceding chapter 4 become irrefutable in the life of the Jew. There are um, three questions that he is going to answer in this chapter that we'll finish by the end of May. Uh, three questions, uh, how Abraham was justified, when he was justified, and why he was justified. Now, one of the things that he has done uh, a couple of times, chapter 3, verse 21 says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. It's very important to Paul that his audience understand that he is not bringing them anything new. He is by no means introducing something that is brand new. It is something that was contained in the Law and the Prophets, something contained in the Old Testament. Um, and in one sense, the purpose of chapter 4 is to make clear that what Paul was preaching was not only predicted in the Old Testament, but it was, it was even there the way that their great heroes were justified and saved. That's what chapter 4 is, is trying to demonstrate, that I am not bringing new, a new gospel, but this is the one that was, that was enjoyed by Old Testament heroes. It was predicted in the Old Testament, but, uh, but also grasped by the great heroes of the faith. Now, um, I just want to pause for a quick second and say one thing that I've already said but, uh, in previous weeks. It was at this point that I introduced nine weeks ago this nine-week series on legalism and antinomianism. Because when I was preparing on chapter the Romans 4, I, I, I wondered, all right, what, is, what is Paul's motives for writing this book? And obviously one of his motives is so that unbelieving people, his Jewish audience, could hear the truth and respond to that truth savingly. That they could discover something about what Paul was saying and their arguments would be refuted and they would say, oh no, we've been holding on to a cistern that has, no, that has holes in the bottom. Um, and by so doing, lead his Jewish brethren to the Savior. But then I went on, I went on to say this, that one of the, another reasons, one of, a, one of Paul's motives very well may have been this great pastor, uh, Paul, begins to think of some of his Jewish buddies that have already come to faith in Christ, but have brought into the kingdom all of this baggage, all of their lives they have been taught that, that the way that you are acceptable is to perform well. Uh, but now, having been born again, uh, they have understood something about the gospel and its freeness, there remained something in those converted Jews that made them almost go back to their prior Jewish days and live out their experience in trying to perform well enough uh, so that they could be approved of by God. Now, these were redeemed people, but who had been taught all of their lives that their standing was based on their performance. And so he thinks, oh no, I've also got a write something for my converted Jewish friends that would keep them from the dreaded disease of trying to live out their Christian experience legally. And you know, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know of an audience that is more similar to um, uh, Jews trained for millennia than we are. Because we bring that same mentality into the kingdom along with us. That, king, that, and that mentality being... 
that if I perform well, then I'll, um, I know that I've grasped this thing by grace, but now I enter it and I somehow have lost touch with that. And in dwelling inside the same, in the one entity, there's this, there's this heart that's committed to Jesus Christ and understands that salvation is free. It is a gift of God. It is, set, it is wrought by grace. But laying side by side in my soul is that, that sense that if I'm ever going to be approved and, and make God happy, I'm really going to have to hump it. You know, guys, um, we were taught that, as you know, in so many ways. If you were an athlete in, of any description, you remember that if you performed well, the crowds applauded. But there were some very serious consequences if you didn't perform well. And it was called pine. So you, you humped it to perform well so that everyone would approve. It's that mentality, ladies and gentlemen, that we brought into the kingdom with us. And that is the thing that launched me into nine weeks of saying, ladies and gentlemen, there are two extremes to the... Um, in, in, in the Christian life that must be avoided. An extreme of legally fleshing out who I am and the extreme of having no sense of rule, no sense of order, no sense of law as an antinomian. And what I tried to close with last week is that our, our, our ethic as a believer is emulating Christ. Emulating Christ. Emulating Christ in the power of the Spirit. Uh, that we're going, to, we're going to become little Jesuses because we're going to mock him. No, we're going to ape him. We're going to emulate him. We're going to be like him. And that's what it means, ladies and gentlemen, to live a life of grace. Now, back to the chapter itself. By, by a quick way of reminder, the theme of this chapter 4 is that there is only one covenant of grace. And men, all men, no matter when they were born, are saved in exactly the same way. And that's the thing that a Jewish audience does not believe. Paul is saying, you are saved by grace through faith. And they said, wait a minute, that's somehow new. Because we've been taught that you were saved by law works. And so he is saying, wait a second now, let's look at one of your heroes and see how it happened in him. You all know that name, don't you? Abraham, says Paul. If you know him, how did it happen to him? And if we can figure out how it happened to him, um, then maybe you can learn something about how it ought to happen to you. By using two of the most famous persons in the history of Judaism. He mentions Abraham, and, and primarily, chapter 4 is about Abraham. But there's another one in there, David. He mentions David in, in verse 6. The two most famous heroes in all of Judaism. Um, the, the one to whom, that is David, the one to whom the promise was given that the Messiah would come from his loins. They, the Jews were, or Jews were very proud of David and Abraham. And they still are. And how did those two men become so favored by God? That's what Paul is doing in chapter 4. How did those two men that the Jewish audience knew well, uh, honored, uh, loved, and esteemed, how did they become so favored with God? Well, we'll see that as Paul answers the question, how? Now, let's look at verse 1. What then should, we'll probably, we'll hope to get through three verses tonight. 
What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? Now guys, again I say, uh, we're reading the Bible and we come to that and those words somewhat, um, you know, confuse us. It's not, it's not rocket science, I promise you. It's not that tough. If you can understand simply the word flesh, you can understand verse 1. What is, what is Paul saying by the flesh? What, what does he mean by that term? Well, a good answer, I think, you don't need to turn, but a good answer I think can be found in some, something Paul said in his own life in Philippians chapter 3. Just listen to all this stuff. Well, if, um, if you had, we have no confidence in the flesh, but uh, I might also have confidence in the flesh, because if anyone thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning the... What Paul means by flesh in 4.1 in the book of Romans is anything a man is prone to rely on for his redemption. Anything that we are prone to to lean on and trust in to deliver us from the wrath that comes, that is flesh. So Paul is asking his Jewish audience, okay guys, if I could paraphrase a moment, let's take Abraham. How do you think Abraham was saved? Uh, or uh, what did he find? Or uh, what has he attained through the flesh? When it comes to the flesh, what did Abraham find? Huh? He's again trying to appeal to people who know that name and know it very well. And so he says in verse 2, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Um, was Abraham made acceptable to God through who he was or what he did? No way. Because if that were so, then Abraham would have room to boast. Now, guys, you, you, you know this truth, don't you? If there is anything within our whole spiritual makeups that causes, in terms of our standing before God, if there's anything in our spiritual makeups that evokes from us a boast, we don't understand the gospel. Anything. Uh, remember in chapter 3, verse 27, where Paul said, Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By, by what law of works? Oh, no, by the law of faith. This gospel in, excludes all efforts at boasting. Now, folks, here is one of my, my great concerns as an evangelical today. And I hope you'll listen to me closely at this point. We must be very careful in our understanding of the role of faith. Because I'm telling you, ladies and gentlemen, in evangelicalism, faith has become a boast in some circles. We must be very critically minded or we will fall into a trap of turning faith into a work. And it becomes then something about which I may boast. Let me give you a little dialogue. Um, let's, uh, I, you, I'm just putting, this is <coughs> purely hypothetical, but I certainly believe it exists in reality. Um, how is a man saved? By his faith. You see, uh, how are you saved? I have faith. You know, do you see the subtle error in such a statement? 
No, ladies and gentlemen. You were not saved by faith. No, you weren't. You were saved by Christ. You were saved completely apart from anything that has merit in and of yourself. And if you say, that's why you have to be very careful about saying, what is the role of faith? Did my faith save me? No, it didn't. What saved me was the completed and finished accomplished work of Jesus Christ. And faith is simply the instrument that attaches me to Christ. You see, gang, if in your understanding that because you exercised faith at some day in the past, that is the thing that saved you, I say to you, you have a nice boast on your hands. No, it didn't. It was Christ. He saved you. Because there's nothing that Abraham can boast about, and it's nothing that you can boast about. That's why it's so important, ladies and gentlemen, that you understand a text like uh, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, or Romans 6, 23. For by grace you have been saved by faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Did you get that? What is it that is not of ourselves? It is the faith that is not... Faith must be protected. It must be guarded as a gift. It must be shielded from error that would call it something that was meritorious that I did. Oh no, ladies and gentlemen. You got faith in God, good for you. But that didn't save you. What saved you is the work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And with the hand of a beggar, you laid out and attached yourself to Him. Uh, that's what faith is. It's just the instrument. Guys... God demanded a certain standard from you, and you didn't get it. And so He did. And you get it. And that's what saved you. <laughs> the thing that was accomplished outside of you, not the thing that was done by you. Um, the point that Paul is making in chapter 2, uh, or verse 2, because if Abraham was justified, justified by a work, any work, baptism or confirmation or any of those things, then he has something to boast about. If I, could, if I could do it like this, you stand before God, and God says, why should I let you into my heaven? And you say, because I exercised faith. Do you not see the merit in that? No, I, you don't let me into heaven because I, that is somehow taking a giant finger and pointing to how bright and brilliant you were to figure out something that nobody else figured out. No, ladies and gentlemen, faith points away from itself. I'm, I should come into heaven because your son provided the righteousness. Um, and all that he provided is mine via his promise. Um, boasting means, I mean, if you, boasting equals a failure to understand the gospel. All boasting is eliminated. Um, then verse 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. I want to do a little something that's somewhat of a digression here, if I might, and I don't know how long it will take, maybe the rest of our ten minutes together, but um, um, I, I wanted you to notice one thing in verse, or a couple of things in verse 3. Uh, notice what Paul says, but for what does the Scripture say? He doesn't say Scriptures. I, I think there is some import in that, in that he sees the Bible as one grand glorious unity. Um, what Scripture says is law in the mind of Paul. 
and, and I thought that was interesting, but that's not really my, my digression. My digression has to do with this. In our day, um, people are eager to take pot shots at the Bible. And you know, guys, um, the thing that I, that I want to do for you as your pastor is give you a confidence in the Bible. Uh, that you, um, that's one of the things that I want to do, that you would never, ever worry about people saying, well, I found a contradiction over here. Or, uh, you know, there's a myth in there somewhere. Uh, you know, my biology teacher told me in the, you know, um, did I tell you what we're thinking about doing? I, and, and, and BJ's my man. Um, the, all graduating seniors that graduate from our high school ministry, BJ, if I say this, you might have to do it now. But, <clears throat> but I have said this to BJ before. One of the things that I want to do with our high school seniors is that I want to give them a brief, quick, three-week, three-hour, four-hour uh, course on apologetics because the m first class they walk into on the college campus, they're going to be assaulted. It's usually the, the, the uh, freshman year. Anybody out there a Christian believe the Bible? And, and all I want them to know is they're safe. They're safe in putting their confidence in this book. People love to take pot shots at the Bible. I understand that. But one of the books that they love to take... Um, Pot shots at one of, one of their favorite targets is the book of Genesis, especially Genesis one over creation. You know that. But here's my point, ladies and gentlemen. Paul, the apostle, <laughs> is ready to stake his whole argument. He is ready to base everything about what he's preaching on one verse out of the book of Genesis, Genesis 15, 6. And we'll look at it maybe tonight. He is ready to bank everything that he's teaching on one verse, Genesis 15, 6. Now, tell me this. Does it make any sense to believe in something in chapter 15 of Genesis if chapters 1 and 2 are so full of foolishness? Is that erudite? Is that wise? To bank on something in 15 when you have made such disaster in chapters 1 and 2? Do you think somehow the book could be started with idiocy in chapters 1 and 2, but then could have contained truth in chapter 15? Ladies and gentlemen, I, I'm telling you, I don't know where any of you stand. I know where I stand about creation. But I just want you to know you give up a whole lot. You give up a whole lot when you give up on creationism. It's not simply to make you more, to appear more scientifically acceptable. That's not all you give up, ladies and gentlemen, I promise you. Let, let me just, let me show you. Let, let me show you. Wait, 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 let me take a minute and do this. Um, um, I just got back and I did a men's conference in Florida and... Um, um, you know, I've done men's conferences a lot. Um, I love to minister to men. I, I love to be with men. Um, although, anyway, um, you know, I've heard, my, you've heard, heard all my stuff, uh, you know, the masculinity, biblical masculinity, biblical femininity, and the roles of men and all that business. And you've heard me sing, he took a hundred pounds of clay. You know, I've done all that business and all the cute little things that men's conferences do. You've heard all the stuff at me, uh, Promise Keepers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and we know all the things, and the only reason that people come to those things is because they want somehow their marriage to improve. Um, and they're there to have somebody tell them how to make their marriage better. Uh, at the men's conferences, you know, let's be let's be men and let's let's do the. And I I I don't I'm not trying to 
I'm not trying to uh, debunk those efforts at all. But I am saying this. The key to masculinity, I, I am... Um, my theme in Florida the last week came out of Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. If I want to be a man... By the way, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know of any place else in the Bible where Jesus says, You want to know me? You want to understand me? And you want to understand something about the, the nature of who I am as a man? I'll tell you. I'm mean and I'm lowly of heart. He doesn't say, I'm sovereign. I'm almighty. He says, I'm meek and lowly of heart. Learn of me and find rest for your souls. Gentlemen, you want to be like Jesus? And that's where we must start. Learning to be meek and lowly apart. Now I say all that to say this, which is really about what I was saying. Where in the Bible do you think we can go to learn meekness and lowliness of heart the best? I'll tell you what my opinion is in just a second. But think about it. Let's just imagine that we as men wanted to learn that. Where would we go? Well, ladies and gentlemen, here's where I want to suggest that you go. I suggest that you go to Job 38. Where after all of his pain, after all this trial, after all this difficulty, after all of his counsel of his four buddies, God steps up and the Lord answered Job out of the world and said, Hey, Job, you tell me this, son. Tell me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, huh? Come on, Job! Be a man! Step up! Tell me where you were when I laid the foundations of the earth! Tell me, Job, if you know, when I set the deer to calving, where were you? Where were you, Job? Where were you when I set limitations on the, earth, on the, on the oceans and I said, thus far thou shalt go and no further? Where were you, Job? My point is simply this. To get to my point, you give up on creation and you give up on this. You give up on creation, ladies and gentlemen, and you might as well rip Job 38, 39, 40, and 41 out of your Bibles. Because do you know what God does to answer Job's great dilemma? He points him to his creative fiat. Don't give up on it, ladies and gentlemen. Very frankly, one of the things that we do around here is try to tell you there's all kinds of reasons to be a creationist. But I, my point, that's my digression. Why would you ever bank on Genesis 1? Why would you ever bank on Genesis 15? If you can't bank on Genesis 1. Well, for as, for you, as for me and my house, ladies and gentlemen, we love to bank on it, and I hope you do too. Because if you give it up, you give up a lot. Let's quit for the night. Our Father, I, I do thank you for all of your kindnesses by giving us this book a book in which we can discover all manner of beauty. A book in which we find the great truths that, that allow us to figure out life and to live it more fully. A book that tells us who God is and what He's like. A God who to know is eternal life itself. 
So, Father, thank you for giving us the chance to know you. Thank you for giving us the opportunity. We gather here on Wednesday nights, Wednesday after Wednesday, not because we want somebody else to cook our meals. We've come because we want to know you. Oh, God, there's so much of you that we don't know. In little efforts like these, allow us to know you in all your beauty. We pray, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.